Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I love the pairing of our readings today with the Passion narrative. We hear the story of Jesus, a story that can't be, can't be read as a spectator, but instead pulls us in to live in the stories. And then today we have Psalm 24, and the Psalms are a language of their own, right? A language of prayers that we offer to the Lord and a language of promises that the Lord gives to us. And I think it is one of the greatest gifts of Scripture that Scripture gives us the language for talking to God. And the psalm, I think, is the best place for that. For the full range of human emotion is shown in the psalms, right? We find broken people, we find hurting people, we find happy people, rejoicing people, crying people, you name it. And this world of sin that we have inherited, it's important and appropriate to express a range of feelings, especially when we pray. And the psalms show us how we can do this and even, in a way, teach us how to do this. Because it's not just about our emotions, but how in the various circumstances life that we go through, how in those moments God relates to us and in our emotions, how God promises, promises to be in relation with us even when we are sad, angry, afraid, lost, rejoicing, you name it. It is the language for the people of God. Our prayers, our praises, our emotions. And even if our emotions change, our intentions, our actions sway to and fro, the Lord himself does not change. And it is here in the Psalms that God demonstrates not only his sovereignty over the world, but also his goodness to his people in it, and allowing us to instill our trust, our hope, and our confidence in him as his children. So I think Psalm 24 is a very powerful psalm that we look at today. So Bible's out. We can go through it. It's in your bulletin as well, or you can follow it along. Is it not popping up, Hector? Did I do something wrong? He's waving his hands. He's waving his hands. I don't know what that means. <laughs> do I got to connect? Do I got to do that thing where everyone shouts at the code? I hate this. This is embarrassing. I'm going to now connect to the sanctuary. Nobody try to beat me to this, and so you can throw up your own videos. All right. On the count of three, shout it out. Thank God it was an appropriate number. Nine, 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 five. There we go. I did it. Oh, you guys missed this part. This is some powerful slide that I threw down on you right here. Hold on. It's coming. I can feel it. I feel like I was really in a moment there, and technology just <laughs> took it away from us. There we go. Oh, man, it's making me start over. I don't even know what's going on. I drew a picture. I had a map. There was powerful things on this. No, I'm just kidding. All right, let's dive into the text. Here we go. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Now, this is the Psalm of David, and David was this noble and successful king, but he was also a noble, successful king of a very small nation compared to, say, countries and conquering nations like Egypt, Babylon, or Assyria. But we find out right away this is not a psalm about David. This is a psalm about God. See, David knew his place. And I wonder as we look at this psalm if we know our place. 
Or if we have a tendency to only see our kingdom, our tiny place, the things that we ourselves control. But right away, in the prayer and in the language of this psalm that we are to develop in, we are reminded of our place. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's. That's why when we pray as a people, we say, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Because we must learn and train ourselves that our words, our prayers, are more than just words. The liturgy that Dr. Heidi and Alex Gebert put together at the front are not something that we're doing because, hey, it'd be fun if we all participate together. Because these are words that shape us. These are words that are rooted in Scripture, that are the very language of the people of God. Our words and our prayers are to become who we are. Unless you think that we're just supposed to think that we are small and worthless and nothing, and that's what the word says, I would remind you of Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 20, but I won't read them all. I'll just read sections of it. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servants. I have chosen you and not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Goes on to say, I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, don't fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob. That's kind of mean, God calling us worms. But what an excellent metaphor for who we truly are. Buried, dead, lost, worthless in the dirt. And yet God does not keep us as worms, but says, Little Israel, do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them. The wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away. And you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. It is here in the Word that we find that God Himself has turned us from worms into mountain movers. The text continues and says, It's the world and all who live in it, for He founded it on the seas and established it in the waters. This is a sweeping statement of God's ownership on this earth. It's not just that the earth in itself is, but that He fills it, that He works to keep it full. The harvest, the creatures, the trees, the things. This destroys the idea that Satan owns the earth. Rather, it is God who has a claim on everything. That garden snake does nothing but lie. Especially when he comes to Jesus and says, look, everything that you see is mine. I'll give it to you if you just worship me. Satan has no real power. It's just a lie, a facade. It was done away with and destroyed. No one who owns anything works to destroy it. Rather, when we own it, we care for it, we nurture it, and we work it. And that claim on everything is all of creation. All of creation. Including you and I. And for you and I, he has said that he has made us in his image. And it doesn't go on to give a description of how our nose or our hair color or our eyes will go, but rather what God himself will do 
an image of caring and nurturing. What a privilege he has given us to become parents or grandparents. And what a responsibility to care and to love one another. A reminder that our God is constantly and actively working here on this earth. Many of us, I would say all of us, have seen him working and have participated in his work of redemption and good. And I don't know if I'm ever going to give a sermon where I don't at least stop and for a second call out to you that we have this responsibility to care for these children in our midst. We will have an announcement today about the ministry to Voldemort children and the awareness event that we're going to put on. But we cannot pretend like these children, because they were not birthed of ours, are not ours. They did not choose the situation that they have been put in. But God has chosen us to be His church and to care for them, to love them. Even today, members of our congregation will take in an 8-year-old and an 11-year-old whose mom is struggling and would be homeless, put into the foster care system and separated. But instead, they will open their home and the child will sleep in a safe environment tonight. And the rest of us participate with them, not just by our prayers, but by providing meals and taking these children to school and driving them and dropping off the materials and the things that they need. This is our mission as the church of Jesus, to care for the orphans and the widows, to care and to announce God's claim on them as well. For he founded this world on the seas, established it on the waters. We marvel and wonder here. I don't think David ever ventured probably farther than beyond a few hundred miles of Israel. He didn't have a globe or a Google Earth that he could look at for images of what else was out there. But he knew that the waters of this earth dominated the globe so much that the earth is just in the midst of it. I think sometimes we forget because we live in this urban area of the beauty and the majesty and the marvel of the things that God himself has created. And we miss something when we don't stand there in the presence of his nature and look out and see the real wonder and marvel of God. I'm not trying to tell you what to do with your vacation, but I think you get it. Now slide four. A question, two really. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? This question really is in light of the majesty of God, of the power of God, of what God does. Who can stand before him? Maybe this is a question we don't ask ourselves as much as we should. Now, it might be because we know the answer, right? We're good Lutherans. We nod our head and say, we've got this head knowledge. We know what the answer is. But maybe we don't ask or maybe we don't care about this question because we know the answer already and maybe also because we like to ask other questions instead. A question like, well, how can I be happy? I want to be happy. How can I be happy? We have become a people who pursue their own happiness before they consider where they stand before the Lord. If I may be so bold to say that personal happiness is important, but it is not more important than standing before the Lord. And we may shudder when we hear that call to pick up our cross and to follow Jesus, but we are to embrace this call 
because it does not mean that we will never be happy. It means that the Lord has revealed what is worth pursuing in this life. There is something more. And he says, don't just know the answer of who can stand before the Lord, but respond to it. Move from head to your heart to hands and to habits. See, David gives the answer and says, The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a god, is the one who can stand, or false god, is the one who can stand. Now, I took the liberty of changing the text there and making that an ampersand. I was watching the Academy Awards, and don't ask me why, it was just on. And I saw the writing credits, and I was like, well, why does that one have that ampersand and one of them have an and? Well, a little more for the tuition dollar here. The Writers Guild of America uses the word and and the ampersand, the symbol for and, to mean different things. Using the word and, it separates two names. It indicates that the writers worked on the same project, but they worked independently of one another. What that means is that I wrote one part, and then I handed it off to Jack here, and he wrote another part, and then he kicked it back to me, and then I worked on it again. But when the ampersand is used... It means that the two writers worked alongside one another as a single voice. There's a difference then, and that difference is actually quite significant. The ampersand means they never worked on it apart, but they were one voice together. Scripture shows us that our faith and our work should be joined by this ampersand, that they work together, not independently of one another. Now, that has nothing to do with salvation, right? We know good Lutherans, head answer. Our Lord has given us salvation, but faith and work must be joined together. And so must our words and our deeds. That's why he talks about clean hands and a pure heart. Talks about trusting in God alone. Heart and hands. And the words that we are speaking are a good indication of the state of our heart and are mirrored by the things that we find ourselves doing. And no doubt, when you were listening, you were hearing about Peter. His hands didn't seem too clean. His words, neither. His heart not there, and he was calling down all sorts of false oaths and lies. If you're like me, you realize my hands aren't clean either. My heart is not always pure, and idolatry is not only subtle in my life, but also very stubborn. And very often I find myself making promises with just a tinge of deceit. And I realize then that I cannot stand before the Lord. But we have an entire language, an entire way of reading scripture. And we read Psalm 24 through the eyes of Jesus and through the understanding of Romans 3, which says this. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely 
by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished and He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Boasting then is excluded because of the law, the law that requires works, no, but because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And the key words now become from, vindication meaning righteousness. We receive blessing from the works of Jesus our Lord. We receive vindication from the works of our God and Savior, Jesus. We read this no longer as a precondition, but as a result. When we read Psalm 24 in the light of Christ, it's our heart and our actions. They're not the precondition, but they're the result of being changed and saved by Jesus Christ. And the prayer that we pray, Lord, give us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us, is answered by the promise of Jesus on the cross. We have been made clean. Hands cleaned by the pierced hands of Jesus. That is the language and the story that we have. For we stand in the presence of Jesus as the people, His children, the God of Jacob. Not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. For we are His people, and we have been called to pursue to seek, to long for, to desire above all else, Jesus. Seek his face, hold his face. Doesn't get any more personal than that. And I love the repetition here and the repetition of all the Psalms because not only does it signify importance, but maybe, just maybe, it's a constant reminder that even when we fail to get up and to seek again the face of the Lord, because the shepherd never stops seeking you or I. So it is no wonder we cry out and pray to lift up our heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is He, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. We lift our heads and we lift our hearts because we don't have to be afraid. The strong and mighty warrior fights for us. We lift our head and our hearts and we are not despaired or dismayed for the King of glory, Jesus, has called us His own. Yeah, we love the prayers and the promises of the Psalms for they are deeply relational and give us a window into who our God is, what He has done, what He is doing and will continue to do for us and how His attributes of sovereignty and mercy, of goodness relate to us as we experience this life no matter if it is going well or bad. We are not alone, and the Psalms help us express these beliefs, these prayers, these emotions.
The Psalms are the prayers of real people. They are the prayers of you and I. People who have struggled but not lost their faith in God. Who wrestle in this life. But know that God remains faithful to us. So let us spend time learning these prayers. Speaking the language. And spending a lifetime of learning and trusting and living in the promises of our God.